Well, turn to your neighbor and say, you're messed up. Turn to your other neighbor and say, you really messed up. Now, you see, you're not giving anybody any new information. And if there are any, any married couples here, you understand that this is one of the reasons that God gave a man a wife is so the wife can help the husband understand that he is perpetually flawed. Do you understand this? All right. 36 years. Don't clap at that, please. 36 <laughs> 36 years of marriage will train a man that after a while you just realize, you know, baby, you're right. I'm, you're right. I'm wrong. Here's the credit card. I mean, you do just get it out of the way. But we're, we're all messed up. We're flawed. And um, let, me, let me really cook your theological noodle here if I could. God made you that way. God made you messed up. Say, you gotta be, you gotta be kidding. No, I'm not. Sorry. He made you that way. And I've entitled this message this morning, Flawed Yet Fruitful. Let's read some Bible together. Colossians, the first chapter. I'm reading out of the NIV, the newly inspired version. Chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. We pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience. And joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. Now that's, that's three very pregnant verses of scripture. But I want to just take a second to exegete this. Break this down for us. First of all, the what. What? That we would live a life worthy of the Lord. Now, how many of you know, first of all, you can't do that? Think about it. Something worthy is something that would somehow become what? Of equal value, equivalent. We just celebrated the table together, the Eucharist. God saw something in you that was worth him exchanging his life for. Now, I don't know how to tell you this, but there are not many people I'm going to die for. Family? Yep. Few friends, yep. Most of you, I ain't gonna die for you. <laughs> Sorry, I know I'm, I'm, I'm one of your pastors and all that, but you know, if it's a train and it's you and it's me, there's gonna be some qualitative decision making <laughs> happening in the instant of that. I'm sorry, you know, but but you you understand. So living a life, and I'm looking at Keith and Joe Temple. I'm like, I ain't no way. So anyway, <laughs> hey guys, love you. Living a life worthy of the Lord. How do you even do that, first of all? To please him in every way, pleasing the Lord. Have you ever tried to live your life pleasing someone? How difficult that is? You know, and I finally, I finally learned something. We serve all, we please one. 
And that, that, is, that is my job description, my full-time job. Find out not only what God's will is, but find out what pleases the Lord. This is the what. And then it says, bearing fruit in every good work. And every good work, this is not just some ecclesiastical, you know, nebulous kind of great. Every work, meaning all of the antichrists and the Pharisees and the uncircumcised Philistines and Gentiles that you work with every day. The mundane things that you do to put groceries on the table. Everything you do, you're bearing kingdom fruit as a result of that work. Hmm. So how do we do that? First of all, growing in the knowledge of God. If your knowledge of God has become static, you've got a problem. And this is where error occurs, is when we think that we've got God figured out. Amen? And so we can write it down. This is how God's going to act in every situation. This is who God is. This is what God does. How many of you know as soon as you try to memorialize that, God will just shift one degree to the right. God will just keep right on moving. You with me? We stay in school. This is perpetual. This is continuing education, growing in the knowledge of God. Why? How? So strengthening us with all power according to his glorious might. That power is not yours. It is his. And why do we do this? So that it can produce great endurance and patience in us. Now, why would one need great endurance and patience if it didn't portend that there were going to be some challenges that were going to require great endurance and patience? Here we go. But this is a work of God in our life so that he can qualify us to share in the inheritance of the saints. Before you can ever inherit anything, you have to be qualified to inherit. In other words, someone leaves you something in a will the minimum qualification is you are who you say you are and you are who the will is pointing to. That's a qualification. But God has qualified us to inherit something eternal, something that could never happen on our own. You can never qualify yourself for an eternal inheritance. Only God can do that qualification. Amen? And then bearing fruit. Bearing fruit becomes what this is about. Ephesians 2.10, we are God's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now marry that with Philippians 2.13. It says, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. So then God has prepared something for us to do, but God acts and wills in us to do it. That's a marvelous thing, that God doesn't make a requirement on us that God himself does not provide that requirement met in full through our life, through the Holy Ghost, if we will allow him to do it. The problem is we messed up. We're flawed. And yet the mandate is still to do what? Bear fruit. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, big name, German. He's a Lutheran pastor, mid part of the 20th century. Theologian, anti-Nazi dissident. Bonhoeffer stood in the 
in the tide of the church just turning a blind eye to everything going on during that period of time. And he said, wrong, no. He was in prison for those efforts, 1943. Just a few weeks before the Allied troops came in and liberated Germany, he was executed in a concentration camp. He was martyred, if you wish, 1945. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was an incredible man of God, but he wrote a number of books. Probably the classic Bonhoeffer book is one entitled The Cost of Discipleship. It's a book that you read it and you realize, one, I'm not smart enough to be reading this book. Number two, I'm not sure I'm saved having read this book. So that's, that's a really good one. Amen? But Bonhoeffer makes, makes this statement in The Cost of Discipleship, and I quote, Fruit is always the miraculous, the created. It is never the result of willing, but always a growth. The fruit of the Spirit is a gift of God, and only He can produce it. They who would bear it know as little about it as the tree knows of its fruit. They know only the power of Him on whom their life depends, unquote. It's a powerful statement. But the notion that we ever get it together, enough on our own to bear any kingdom fruit, is simply untrue. Not going to happen. And we look throughout Scripture, the biblical heroes of the faith, and we find out they're messed up. Adam messed up. He messed it up for all of us. I mean, come on. One dude, one tree, one command, and it made him nuts. I mean, seriously, one thing and he couldn't get it right. He messed it up. Moses, a murderer. Few anger issues. Striking a rock too many times. God said, okay, out of the pool, you ain't going in. Abraham, father of our faith, passes off his wife as his sister. Because he's afraid of what's going on around him. David, adulterer, murderer, conspirator. Elijah, very bad attitude. <laughs> Paul, known enemy of the church. And then Peter. Well, let's talk about Peter for a moment. I mean, God, who had chosen this man to receive perhaps the greatest revelation that had ever come to mortal flesh. Hardwired a defect in Peter. Now understand, this is God we're talking about here. I mean, if we look around and say, why, why did he choose these knuckleheads? I mean, he chose 12 disciples and one of them was rotten from the beginning. I mean, he should have... He should have had a better vetting process. He should have sent them back to HR or something because he, he certainly could have found a group of guys. I mean, we got one of He's had his hand in the till the whole time. He's embezzling funds. He's a thief. I mean, where do we get this guy from? And God, but Jesus knew. Because when the plan of redemption for mankind was devised long before God ever separated light and darkness, said, you know, we're going to need this fool. We're going we're to need 
a guy that's going to betray. This is how it's going to have to work out. And I don't know about you, but I'm glad that I wasn't chosen for that purpose. Hello? Romans 9, read it sometime. But I'm glad God didn't choose me to be the one who. But Peter, Peter, I mean, Luke 22, Simon, Simon, Satan, his ass is sift you as wheat. Now, at that point, that would have been where we want Jesus to step in and say, but I have rebuked him. Hallelujah. Uh Uh-uh. He said, but I prayed for you, which means look out, son, because he's going to sift you as wheat. Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Now, he's already told him, you're getting ready to go through it, son. And that crack in your character, that thing that I've hardwired in you is getting ready to come to light. But you're going to be okay. Because he says, when you turn back, strengthen your brothers. And, of course, Peter gets all big. You know, he says, oh, Lord, this will never happen. You know, I'll go to prison. I'll die for you. Son, let me just tell you. Before this night is over, before you hear the rooster crow three times, you're going to deny me. I'm going to show you what's really on the inside. Now, this is the same Peter. The revelation came. You are the Christ. This is the same Peter that preached the greatest evangelistic sermon probably in the history of the church at Pentecost. But don't you think before Peter opened his mouth, don't you think he remembered what he was capable of? Don't you think he remembered throughout his entire life that crack, that flaw, that defect, issue, if you wish, that fault line that ran through him. Yet it was that very fault line that was his making. Hear me. Peter knew what he was capable of. Paul never forgot either. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 9 and 10, he says, I'm the least of the apostles. And this is not some false humility here. This is not some man trying to be humble. He knew what he was. He says, I don't even deserve to be called an apostle. But why? Because I persecuted the church of God. I know what it did. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Sounds like Popeye, doesn't it? I am what I am. Sorry, too old. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked, and then then he shifts gears slightly. No, I worked harder than all of them. It almost sounds like Paul's kind of rising up and saying, yeah, I'm the man. No, I worked harder than all of them. Then he says, yeah, not, not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Paul remembered. He remembers. I know what I did over there, but I know what I am today. Last night, I had the privilege of hearing an amazing violinist, Rachel Barton Pine. She, in a single setting, played all 24 caprices by Niccolò Paganini. Now, I'm getting ready to musically geek out on you, so stay with me just for a moment, okay? These 24 pieces are the literal pinnacle of fiddle playing. I mean, they make demands on the player. They make demands on the ear. I mean, phenomenal. I mean, it Technically, musically, even physically, to be able to pull this off is nothing short of a miracle. This dear woman played all 24 back-to-back. And Niccolò Paganini was a violinist in the 19th century, 
And he could do certain things with his hands, certain stretches that he could do that seemed, they, they even accused him of being demonized because of certain things that he could do with his hands. And yet what you find out is that it wasn't that he was demonized. He had a genetic disorder called Marfan syndrome. Marfan syndrome is when the connective tissues in your body begin to break down. Now, it will eventually be the cause of one's demise. But in this particular case, it allowed him to stretch his fingers out and stretch his hand out in a way that no human had been able to do. So he was able to do things with the violin that no one else had ever done before. As a result of a genetic defect, he took violin playing into another realm. Just as an aside, by the way, Abraham Lincoln also had Marfans, hence the drawn face and the features. And Abraham Lincoln did one or two decent things for humanity as well. Come on. But the point I'm trying to make is even through the flaws, they produce fruit. What an amazing phenomenon. Hebrews says this, chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for what? Doing His will. And may He work in us what is pleasing to Him. So we're messed up. We're flawed. Yet we're still told to bear fruit. So then what is our response? Let me give you five things in closing. The very first thing is we have to redefine what success really is. I'm always concerned when I see the church chasing the world and the church beginning to adopt what the world has established our priorities. Rather than the world looking like the church, the church looking like the world. And sadly, there have been many principles of success that have come from the world that now the church has adopted. And we say, in the presence of these things, you are successful. Come on, you know what I'm talking about. And largely, it's the more syndrome. More health, more wealth, more of pretty much everything is the mark that you are successful. That you are allowing the work of faith to come and operate in and through your life so you can have the stuff. Am I being unfair? I don't think so. Because if you look at most of what has captured Christendom in the West, that's been pretty much that gospel. This is how you can be successful. This is how you can take the principles of the kingdom, bring them down into this kingdom, and you can spend it today. This is what success looks like. It's more of everything. But if we look in Hebrews 11 for a moment and consider the heroes of the faith, and we read down beyond the first few chapters. Now, that list in Hebrews lists some pretty amazing guys. They did some pretty amazing things. They were successful. But if we look at the whole context of Scripture, read down in verse 35 of Hebrews 11. Let's read a few passages about successful folk. Some were tortured and refused to be released that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, and still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned, sawed in two, put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts 
mountains and caves and holes in the ground. Yet these were all commended for their faith. Watch this. Yet none of them received what had been promised. Yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Now, excuse me, but failing to receive the promise, we would pretty quickly deem a what? A failure. And yet, here in this august list of the heroes of the faith in Hebrews 11, I don't know about you, but I don't consider being sawed in half or living in a hole successful. Not really signing up for that. And yet, these are those commended for their faith that the Bible commends as being successful. We need a redefinition of success. Is it the absence of pain? Is it Is it the presence of visible prosperity? Or could success be doing His will in spite of? In spite of. You see, the victim says, I cannot because. That's what the victim says. Would you agree with that? Now, we don't choose to become victims, but as Christians, we do choose to remain victims. Now, if you're in the world, you're just... You're a victim, you're going to stay a victim. But in Christ, we have the option not to remain being a victim. Would you agree with that? And so success then says, the victim says, I cannot because. The victor says, I can because what? He said so. The victor says, I can because he will do so through me. One little piece of information that I failed to tell you about the violinist I heard last night. Some years ago, as she was leaving the subway system in New York City, the strapper of a violin case got called in the door. And she got drugged between the subway car and between the siding, and it tore one of her legs off. She performed for two hours last night standing on a prosthetic. And yet you didn't get the feeling of, wow, this poor little crippled girl can really play that fiddle. It's a matter of my God. Look what God has done through her in spite of. Kind of go home and say, what's your excuse? We need to redefine success. Two, we need to realize the goal is not just functional, but it's fruitful. You know, we have a word that's become so much a part of our culture now, dysfunctional. Right? We love that word. That's just, this as a dysfunctional family. They're just dysfunctional. This is a dysfunctional work environment. This is just dysfunctional. To the point that it's so commonplace now, we realize that we spell it with a Y. You don't spell dis with a Y. It's the only word, but we all know how to spell it. So it's everything is in terms of whether it's dysfunctional or functional. And sadly, we've become health junkies. And we've done it in the church as well. This is another place that we've adopted certain things from the world. Now, I'm going to get in trouble and we'll quickly get out. So stay with me. So I'm just telling you, so before you start, you know, rummaging around in your purse for rocks, so just give me a second, I'm going to fix this. But we got folks that we live in such a therapeutic culture today that it's like, how healthy can I get? 
How functional can I get? How many hours can I spend on an elliptical? How much, how much therapy can I afford? How many different pastors can I get to? How many Benny Hinn meetings can I run to? How healthy can I get in my emotions and my spirit? And we become health junkies. Now, put your rocks away. I know what the Bible says. Third John is very clear. I pray that you would what? Enjoy good health as your soul prospers. We know God desires us to be what? Healthy. Thank you. But the goal is not just health. It doesn't stop there. There are folks who are saying, you know, when I get healthy and I'm not dysfunctional anymore, then I'm going to actually produce something. You never will. Because this is the cycle and the lie of the enemy that somehow you're so messed up, you need so much help, you need so much therapy, you need so much healing that until you can get all of that squared away, then you don't do a thing. The goal is not functional, the goal is fruitful. Hear me. And I'm not trying to be unkind, but you know, we've, we've even taken on terms in the church. Well, just fake it till you make it. How you doing? Great. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Glory to God. Jesus is on the throne. You know, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Fake it till you make it. Name it, claim it, blab it, grab it. I got the whole thing down. I just, you know me, I'm just positive confession. I'm just not going to tell you the truth. But perhaps a more accurate biblical would be to play through the pain. Maybe, maybe that's truly a more biblical approach than rather than you just give the praise of the Lord hallelujah when you walk in here. How you doing? I live with the Antichrist. My children are demoniacs. I'm broke and my feet hurt. Now that's a little bit too much information right there. So I'm not asking you to throw open everybody when you come to church. But somewhere, just rather than just, just kind of glossing over, could we just say, you know what? I'm in pain. I messed up. I need help. And it's an amazing thing. Scripture says that when you are weak, his strength is perfected. So if we never get to a place of honesty, come on, with ourselves, a place of honesty with a healer of our soul, honesty with the people that we walk with, why do we wonder why we're always walking around like this? Y'all ain't got it yet. The third is rejection of perfection. It ain't going to happen. Get over it. It ain't going to happen. Now listen, I'm as OCD as the rest of you. I want my mess right. I mean, I still straighten pillars. I mean, I like, I want my stuff clean. You know, I, 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 want, I want things right around my life. I want the people right around. I want me right around my life. But the reality is, perfection ain't going to happen. It's just not going to happen. Scripture is very clear in 1 John 3. When you see him, you'll be like him. Then you can be perfect. But as long as you're breathing this air, you ain't going to be perfect. Get over it. Better? Yes. Perfect? No. This is just part of the flaw of humanity. This is what separates you from God. How do I know it's God? He's perfect. You ain't. You just operate in the gift of discernment. It's real clean. All right. Number four. 
we got to resist condemnation. I can only mention this. Condemnation is uniquely about us. It's never about God. Listen to me. Condemnation says, you ain't never going to be. Stop trying. Get away from God with your nasty self. He does not want you around anymore. (laughs) Conviction says, you did it. You're guilty. He loves you. Run to the cross. He's going to make it right. That's what conviction says. Condemnation says he doesn't want you anymore. Conviction says I've always wanted you and I've always made provision for your flaws and your shortcomings. Now hear me. We avoid conviction because it hurts. Nobody, we don't want to hear you're wrong. Matter of fact, you're real wrong. And you're stupid and your hair is falling out. We really don't want to hear that. And yet many times we need the conviction of the Holy Spirit to draw us to that cross. But condemnation, it's not about Jesus. Condemnation is all about us. It's about everything we're not, everything we've done, everything we're not going to be. And so one of the ways that we know that we're steeping in this, condemnation is the manifestation of a me-centric orientation rather than a Christ-centric orientation. You can't live in a place that, you know what? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You can't live in that place in condemnation concurrently. We've got to resist condemnation. And finally, rejoice. God loves you in spite of, never because of. This is an amazing thing about God. In spite of, never because of. Oh, son, I love you so much because you've done all these things for me. Wrong. Wrong. What you do, quote, unquote, for God is an outworking of worship in response to something. This is why Paul, this, this, this is why Paul got so, so feisty about the issue of righteousness and the law. It's because you're trying to earn something. How do you earn The love of a perfect, eternal father through your little thing that you think you're doing right. Your little moment of Bible study. Your moment of little discipline over here. Your little moment where you open the door for somebody. You think you've earned the love of the father through that? You're a very eternal salvation because you did one or two things right today? Come on. You flatter yourself. God will never love you more than he does in this moment. Regardless of what you were doing before you came in this room or what you do when you leave, God can't love you more than the cross. He's made his point. And we rejoice in this. I didn't have perfect teenagers. Parents don't have perfect children, just perfect grandchildren. You know that. <laughs> and I remember going through it with one of mine, and I was saying, you know, you keep, you keep acting the fool, I'm going to be visiting you behind an inch of plexiglass. I said, but you know what? I'll still be your daddy, still be my child, and I'll still love you. And that child just couldn't get hold of that in that moment. Why don't you leave me alone? I'm trying to push you away. I know you are and you can't because I'm your daddy. This is what fatherhood is about. 
This is why it says in 1 John 3, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that's what we are. That's what Scripture says. Yes, we're flawed, but we're called. My children weren't perfect. I was not a perfect child. And yet, I know who I belong to. There's no baby daddy drama in my life. I'm flawed, but I'm fruitful. But it's not because of what I do. It's because of what he does through my life. Amen? What have I said this morning? Yes, you're flawed. But yes, you're also called to bear much fruit, showing yourself to be disciples. Five real easy steps. First of all, redefine success. Not how the world defines success. We, we define success one way. Accessing the will of God and allowing that will to be done through our life. That's a real simple definition for the believer. Secondly, realizing the goal is not just to get healthier. It's not just to get functional, but it's to bear fruit. The rejection of perfection. Get over it. Not going to happen. Resisting condemnation and rejoicing that your name is in the Lamb's book of life. Pray with me. Lord, thank you. You love us in spite of. Yes, we're flawed. And God, God, not through gritted teeth or through tears, we joyfully acknowledge our humanity today. We joyfully acknowledge we can't. We're not. But you can and you are.